This is the Israel Connection on JA Community Radio, broadcasting live on 88FM and streaming over the internet at j-air.com.au. My name is David Schulberg, bringing you another episode of this weekly radio program that provides analysis and insight with important interviews and discussion about Israel. Now, my first guest today is uh, meant to be Daniel Levkovich, who is the CEO and Chief Security Evangelist at Calamity Monitoring, one of Australia's highest regarded security and life safety providers. But I haven't any sign of him as, as yet, so I'm going to do a, a shift to what uh, I had planned to play in the second part of the show, which is the interview I uh, have scheduled with um, my next guest, uh, Giddy Grinstein an Israeli societal entrepreneur who is the founder of the Rayut Group, a non-partisan, not-for-profit research, strategy and leadership group. He helped to found TOM, the Tikkun Olam Makers, a global non-profit that aids the disabled, elderly and poor. He has been involved in peacemaking in the Middle East region since 1995 and is able to offer his astute insights into how we arrived at the events of October the 7th where we stand now, and what current and future negotiators need to know. Giddy Grinstein is the co-author of the book Insights, Peacemaking in the Oslo Process 30 Years and Counting, which chronicles the past three decades of the peacemaking process and outlines a path forward. Welcome, Giddy Grinstein, to the Israel Connection, coming to you on JN Radio in Melbourne, Australia. Thank you very much for having me. It's really a pleasure. Now, you are a veteran of the Oslo process, Giddy. Tell us, please, how you started with the Economic Cooperation Foundation, the ECF, a non-profit, non-governmental track to think tank which specialises in back-channel diplomacy, whose objectives are to build, maintain and support Israeli-Palestinian and Israeli-Arab cooperation in the political, economic and civil society spheres in support of creating a sustainable permanent status based on a two-state solution. A lot there to uh, digest, Giddy, and uh, <laughs> what I just said, but uh, you know all about it. So you want to tell us uh, how, it all, how it all got started for you? Yeah, so, so basically uh, I think all your listeners uh, would appreciate that uh, the Zionist movement has always had great statesmen, mostly men except Golda Meir, until very recently. And uh, of course, we're talking about Herzl, that was an, an incredible diplomatic entrepreneur. And then after that, uh, there was Chaim Weizmann and David Ben-Gurion and others as well. And I was always fascinated by, the, by their work and also appreciated the crucial significance of diplomacy for the Zionist enterprise. And the reason is that if you think about Zionism, what are we trying to do? We're trying to establish a space on the face of this earth where Jews can realize the right of self-determination. We started basically from, obviously we had a historical right, but there was only seven or 10,000 Jews in the area that we now call mandatory Palestine. Before that, it was Ottoman Palestine. Among hundreds of thousands of, uh, of Arabs that lived in that area, we start coming in, we buy land, we build communities. Based on these communities, we build institutions and slowly we grow the Zionist movement. But we needed international recognition, and people worked very hard for us to have this international recognition. Initially, as we know, Herzl from 1896 until 1904, and then Chaim Weizmann took the leadership, and he brought the 
Balfour Declaration, and then David Ben-Gurion, of course, which is a giant, a kind of leader we see once every hundreds of years. One thing led to another, but effectively, Zionism and then the State of Israel evolved through step-by-step, lockstep, between the physical stuff that happened on the ground, the military and security capabilities, and the diplomatic work. And I was always fascinated with the diplomatic work. Honestly, I'll tell you, it was a fallback. I really wanted the military career, but health-wise, I wasn't eligible to to participate, you know, in in combat uh, in the combat track of the military. So I ended up kind of focusing on diplomacy. So in the early 1990s, I'm serving in the Navy as an officer. And from that position, I'm seeing history being made all the time. Initially in the Madrid conference and then the Oslo Accords. So I decided I wanted to be part of that, even if that meant carrying the bags of the people who were making history. One thing led to another. I was introduced to the people that created the Oslo Accords, and they offered me a job initially as coordinating the implementation of the economic section of the agreements. That's how I started for the first two years and then gradually shifted to dealing with the diplomatic and the policy side and the political side. That continued until 1999. So when Ehud Barak was elected in 1999 and he decided to go for a bold political overture in negotiating with the Palestinians, he needed to build a team. And I was there with the knowledge and the skills to be part of the team. And that's how I got into the office of the prime minister and later the bureau of the prime minister. So that's kind of the Israeli equivalent of the West Wing. Right. And you took a big pay cut too, I understand, in order to achieve what, yeah, <laughs> what was going to be something that you really uh, valued as, as an experience. That's now, my advice book- to young people. You know, in your mid-20s, if you have a big dream, don't look at the money. So in your book, Insights, Peacemaking in the Oslo Process, 30 Years and Counting, one encounters terminology like a framework agreement on permanent status, which is known as the FAPS versus the Comprehensive Agreement on Permanent Status, uh, or CAPS as we call it. How do these feature in the processes that have been pursued in negotiations that you describe in the establishment of the Oslo Accords and the peace proposals that have followed thereafter? Okay, so basically uh, the, uh, the first Oslo Accord, what we call Oslo A, it's also known as the Declaration of Principle, which was signed in secrecy on August 20, 1993, and it was then made known to the world. It astonished the world that there was such an agreement, which later led to the signing on September 13 in the South Lawn of the White House in Washington. That agreement basically brought into being, or uh, spoke about, a five-year interim period, at the end of which it should have been a final status agreement. That's how it was referred to. Now, that structure your listeners should know, came from the Israel-Egypt Camp David Accords of 1978. It wasn't invented by Rabin in 1993. It was invented by Prime Minister Begin and President Sadat 15 years before. So basically, the Oslo Accord of 1993 is an agreement about the implementation of the framework that was created with between Prime Minister Begin of Likud and Sadat 15 years before. Anyhow, the, uh, the Oslo Accords speak about a five-year interim period, at the end of which there would be a final status agreement. And it's kind of very general. It defines a few topics that will be negotiated, which we refer to as the outstanding issues, including, for example, borders and territories and settlements, Jerusalem, refugees, etc., economics, water, civil affairs. It does not mention the issue of a Palestinian state, which is very important to know. 
As we get closer to 1999, so the interim period was supposed to start on May 1994. Five years later is May 1999. As we get closer to May 1999, we begin to actually think, what would it look like? How would we get to final status agreement? By the way, at that point, we started, a lot of Israelis were very sensitive about the association between final status and the final solution. Obviously, very different, but that's how we started using, why people started using the word permanent status as opposed to final status. A group of us was thinking about how, what is the best way to get to a permanent status agreement? And we realized that you have to do it in a two-step process. First, a framework agreement that establishes the basic principles of peacemaking and also establishes the biggest trade-offs because the trade-offs in the agreement are not just within every topic, let's say within the area of security or borders, but also between topics. For example, the Palestinians were telling us, if we have a state, then we can be compromised on the issue of the right of return of the refugees. Because once we have a Palestinian state, the refugees can go back to the Palestinian state. They don't have to go back to Israel. So there was a trade-off between the topics and there was trade-off within each topic. And that's why you needed a framework agreement that establishes the biggest quid pro quo of the agreement. And only then you could have a comprehensive agreement on permanent status, which is the CAPS. And that's how this structure was initially created, conceived in our minds. We invented it. Uh, the team that I worked for, myself included, and then suddenly it actually became the policy of the prime minister. I have to tell you that as a young person, then in my 20s, seeing something, an idea that you create around a table that suddenly becomes part of, a, of international agreements is quite an experience. In your book, you point out that all the peace proposals since Oslo have taken the approach to establish a Palestinian state only after reaching an agreement on permanent status with the Palestinians. Apparently, the so-called quartet of countries, which includes the US, the EU, Russia and the UN, this quartet's 2003 roadmap of peace, published in coordination between Bush and Sharon, has been the only American-European plan to reverse the order of events, calling for the establishment of a Palestinian state within provisional borders first, and then reaching an agreement on permanent status. You hit the nail on the head, yeah. Oslo, and it's very, very important that your listeners understand the distinction. The Oslo Accord spoke about reaching a, an agreement that resolves all of the outstanding issues between Israel and the Palestinians since 1948, the issues of refugees, borders, Jerusalem, and so on. The second thing that the, that the permanent status agreement was supposed to do was to bring into being a Palestinian state, which is an extremely complicated endeavor. And then the third thing is to basically create the principles for future relations between that state and the state of Israel. So resolving the outstanding issues, bringing a Palestinian state and establishing the relations between those two states, uh, the Palestinian state and Israel, all of this in one agreement. And only after we get that, we reach the, the, the outcome of two states for two people. This is obviously an incredibly complicated political endeavor. Now, the roadmap that was presented in 2003 suggested an alternative approach. First, a Palestinian state in provisional borders with provisional powers, and then that state works out with Israel its future relations, meaning it allows the gradual resolution of the outstanding issues we mentioned earlier that come from the Oslo Accords. 
So right now, as of 2003, we have two architectures of the process. The Oslo architecture, comprehensive agreement leading to statehood, and the roadmap architecture where a statehood leads to permanent status. And I believe that the healthier way is the gradual way, meaning first the Palestinian state in a very calibrated way, very surgical way, that then leads to shaping of permanent status. It's been my belief for more than 20-something years. And by the way, at the time when I was part of the negotiations, I was the youngest and the most junior member of the team. It was a shining minority. It was an unpopular view. But, you know, already then I thought that, that we should basically even encourage the Palestinian Authority to become a state so that we could deal with it directly, as opposed to dealing with all these very complicated issues at once. I wanted to ask you, you talk about a statement or refer to the, the, the fact that Barak was willing to give Arafat 95% or 99% of the, the land in the deal he offered. How could Arafat walk away from such an extremely generous offer? That's uh, You indicate this as being one of the most common questions asked, and I'm asking it to you now to comment on this about the Camp David negotiations. Uh, what uh, What do you say regarding the fact that Arafat walked away from an offer which seemed too good to refuse. Okay, so basically, yes, indeed, it's one of the most challenging questions that historians will write about for many decades to come. Because clearly, the Palestinian people has had 25 years of strife since 2000, including wars, conflicts, friction, a lot of people that died. Uh, they were not able to realize their own self-determination, build their own state, society, etc., so really a tragic, uh, I think, a tragic decision by Arafat and a wrong decision to the extent that I can judge from my perspective. But uh, I can try to share with your listeners what I heard from Palestinians on why Arafat walked away from the deal. Okay, so the first thing that your listeners need to understand is that from the Palestinian perspective, in 1993, okay, there was the deal, the basic deal between Israel and the Palestinians was that the Palestinians recognized Israel in 78% of mandatory Palestine, meaning in the 1949 borders after the, uh, the War of Independence, Israel basically controlled 78% of mandatory Palestine. This is also the June 1967 lines. And in exchange for recognizing Israel in 78%, Israel recognizes the Palestinians, that the Palestinian state will be in the West Bank and Gaza, namely on 22% of mandatory Palestine. So in the head of the Palestinians, in their mindset, the 1993 deal, the Oslo A Accord, Declaration of Principles, represent a deal of 78% to the Jews, 22% to the Palestinians. Come 2000, seven years later, Israel comes to negotiate and Israel wants to bargain on the West Bank. Meaning, in 2000, this is what the Palestinians are saying, we came to collect and you came to bargain. It was kind of a mismatch of mindsets. So Arafat, what Arafat wanted to hear is the borders will be based on the 1967 lines. And once he heard that, Again, this is the, the message of the Palestinians. He was willing to negotiate land swaps, changes to the border, and so on. But fundamentally, he expected Barak to acknowledge 
that the historical deal, what they call the Palestinians, the historical compromise, you get 78%, we get 22%. Barak wanted to slice the 22%. Initially, he offered the Palestinians 60% of the 22%, which is roughly, let's say, 14% of mandatory Palestine, and then gradually he moved to the 90s. But in principle, he, Barak never accepted the Palestinian position. The only person to try to bridge all these concepts together is Bill Clinton. And Bill Clinton basically said, the Palestinians are going to get anywhere from 94 to 99% of the West Bank, meaning about 20 to 21% of mandatory Palestine, okay? Plus, they're going to have additional assets, like the safe passage between Gaza and the West Bank, a platform for in the seaport of Ashdod, desalination sites along the Israeli coast that will feed water to the Palestinians. So all these things, Clinton said, together with the territory, is the equivalent of 22%. That's the historical bridging proposal of Clinton. So from the perspective of the Palestinians, it was a matter of principle. We were promised 22%, we should get 22%. The second reason the Palestinians walked away from the deal is that they felt, and again, this is what they say, I don't justify it, I think it was a big mistake, but they said that by the time they got the deal, the Clinton deal, the Barack government was already collapsing. It was clear that Sharon was going to win the elections, and they were afraid that they will reveal their cards, agree to a historical agreement, Barack will not be able to ratify that agreement in, in the Knesset, and then there will come a new prime minister and walk away from the deal. So they made their compromises, and Israel will reopen the, the, the agreement. So they said, we are not willing to pay the political price of a historical compromise without be being sure that we have an agreement. These are the two major arguments that they're making. And again, I want to say who's they. The people saying, um, holding these arguments or sharing these arguments, at least with me, are the people that believe in peace with Israel. It's not all Palestinians. It's the Palestinians who believe in a negotiated settlement with Israel. And they're trying to explain what was the logic of Arafat in not taking the deal of Clinton. And again, as we all know, there are a lot of Palestinians that don't want any agreement with Israel at all. Well, it's a fantastic description of, uh, of what transpired there, Kitty. Thank you. Let's, now, let's, let's move forward a little bit. You, you say that Gaza and the West Bank remain fundamentally different in one crucial sense. Around Gaza, Israel is deployed along the 1967 lines. It defines Gaza as foreign territory and has no claim to any of it, even though there have been uh, some right-wing events in Israel talking about um, taking parts of Gaza now. Now, this means that an independent Palestinian polity has emerged in Gaza, namely in a portion of historic Palestine with tacit Israeli recognition. That, of course, is a very significant move toward the reality of two states for two people. However, many now say that what occurred on October the 7th has led to a paradigm shift in Israel's body politic. To what extent has the outbreak of an all-out war by Israel to destroy Hamas affected the conclusions that you arrived at in your book? David, these are amazing questions. I really appreciate them. I mean, you, you've done your homework. <laughs> yes, I have. <laughs> I have. I, I, I like to be prepared when I talk to somebody. Listen, you come prepared. You, your, your, listeners, your listeners should, should take that from you. 
okay, so yes, as of 2005, when Israel unilaterally withdrew from Gaza, Israel effectively recognized Gaza as foreign territory. Remember that Prime Minister Sharon withdrew to the 1967 lines, to the, uh, and, uh, and henceforth, Israel no longer had any territorial claim from Gaza. And even now, this government, officially speaking, has no territorial claim for sovereignty within Gaza, in Gaza or within Gaza. Even the security perimeter that the, that the Netanyahu government is talking about is not about sovereignty. It's about military presence. So in this respect, yes, there is already a part of mandatory Palestine that is, you could say, a liberated area from the perspective of the Palestinians. In the West Bank, obviously, it's very messy because there, there is three types of areas. There is Area A that is under full security and civilian control of the Palestinian Authority, Area B, which is under civilian control of the Palestinians and security control of Israel, and then Area C, which is under full control of Israel, about 60% of the West Bank, is Area C. Plus, there is the area of Jerusalem, Israel annexed from the West Bank to Jerusalem, uh, significant uh, areas that today we call Jerusalem, but for the Palestinian side, it's still the West Bank. Anyhow, there all these complexities that exist in the West Bank did not exist in Gaza until October 7. And that's a very important distinction, because I believed that Israel had an interest in allowing Gaza and the West Bank to kind of gravitate in different directions meaning that there will be, instead of a two-state outcome, there'll be a three-state outcome, Gaza, Israel, and the West Bank. Unfortunately, two things happen. The first is the Trump plan of 2020, when Netanyahu and his team agreed with Trump that Gaza and the West Bank are a single territorial unit. I think that was a big historical mistake that they made, Trump and Netanyahu together. The second piece is, that October 7 created a new, let's at least security reality, potentially also a political reality. And in the plan that Netanyahu published about the political horizon, he actually speaks about two different regimes from Gaza and the West Bank. In some, some kind of a weird, unintended way, we're back to the idea of uh, three entities, three political entities in, uh, you know, in the area between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean. And I believe that now it will not last, meaning it, is, it, will, it will be revealed soon that it is in Israel's interest that Gaza and the West Bank will be unified under the Palestinian Authority. So the areas of the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, Area A, Area B, with Gaza, all under the Palestinian Authority, I think it will soon be revealed that it is in our interest and uh, that will be the outcome. Despite the fact that you refer uh, to these uh, three pillars that uh, have not been destroyed and have maintained a resilient equilibrium, uh, which emerged to preserve Gaza's what you call quasi-independence. Haven't they been, uh, well, the three pillars, do you want to explain what they are? Yeah, so basically what you have in Gaza is an area that Israel has no sovereign claim to. In the West Bank, Israel claims, Israel wants to annex parts of the West Bank into Israel. Some people call it settlement blocks. Prime Minister Bennett spoke about annexing Area C, which is 60% of the West Bank, and turning it into part of Israel. This does not exist in Gaza. The government of Israel says explicitly, governments in plural, including this government, says, we have no sovereign claims in Gaza. 
The purpose of the war is not to occupy Gaza and to annex Gaza into Israel. The purpose of the war is to eliminate Hamas. Once we're done eliminating Hamas, we will have something in Gaza, some sort of a political regime. We're not there to annex Gaza. Khan Yunus will not be like Tel Aviv. Okay, that's the big difference. These three pillars, just to put our audience in the picture, one is the Israel's defence capabilities, principally using Iron Dome and the border fence. Of course, uh, the border fence is seriously breached and, and this needs to be addressed. The second pillar, I think, is the one that uh, is, is most damaged, which is the economic and social pillar, where we saw um, the, the cooperation between Israel and Gaza with Gazans being employed in Israel. Um, I mean, that surely is uh, going to be a serious issue now with Israel probably doubting the fact that they can bring Gazans back into Israel uh, ever in the near future to, to work. So, and the third pillar is, is the political one. So um, I think these are seriously damaged. So uh, where do you stand on the fact that you uh, reckon these pillars are important for maintaining a sense of equilibrium? About the security, I think that the crisis of October 7 really redefined our understanding of uh, uh, what would be required to maintain security for southern Israel and for Israel at large. I think that what is important about October 7 is that the Arab side have a much deeper understanding of Israel's security concern. I'm talking about the Arab countries that are, in one way or another, anywhere between in a relationship with Israel to an ally of Israel. They did not understand what we meant when we said security concerns. They thought that these are just tricks to legitimize Israel's control over the Palestinians. And now they have a deep understanding. I'm saying this from knowledge, from in-depth conversations with multiple people across the region. They understand. That doesn't mean that we have an open door for occupation of the Palestinians and for infringing on the political right. But we do have a historic opportunity to establish a security regime for many years to come, for decades, based on the trauma of October 7, which is a big opportunity. When it comes to economics, I think that right now it's very hard for us to imagine that the Gazans will come back to work in Israel, that there will be trade between Gaza and Israel. But we have to remember that even according to the government of Israel, within a few weeks, we will take out Hamas in Gaza. And hopefully, Hamas will no longer control Gaza. And then we will have 2.2, 2.3 million Gazans on our hand. So there are two options. One option is that we will feed them, and we will nurture them, and we will uh, give them clothing and housing and shelter and food, etc. And the other option is that they will be allowed to work. And there's not enough work in Gaza for everybody. And that's why the logic, the rationale of allowing them in a very monitored and controlled way to work in Israel, I think that logic will have a comeback. It may not be tomorrow or in a week or in a month, but it will come back. Because at the end of the day, which right now, with the current policies of our government, we are heading toward a reality of direct control of Israel over Gaza. And that will be a huge burden, security, economic, and political. And that's why I think that eventually it will not happen, meaning eventually Israel will pivot out of this situation to a new political and economic regime. In this political regime, I think that the Palestinian Authority will be brought into Gaza to control Gaza, uh, obviously an upgraded and reformed Palestinian Authority. And the second thing that will happen is 
there will be economic relations between Gaza and Israel. This is going to cost uh, a fortune and uh, hopefully um, the world is going to come to the party and, uh, and back up what Israel will need to, uh, to enable all this. David, this is exactly the point. If there is a political horizon by the Israeli government and the political horizon only comes into being if the governor of Israel is willing to say the two words, Palestinian state, not tomorrow, not next year, the, if there is the ability to say Palestinian state and there is a political horizon, then the Saudis are willing to step in and help rebuild Gaza. The Emiratis are willing to step in. The world is willing to step in. But otherwise, we broke it. We will need to fix it. Well, you've just been hearing uh, my guest, Giddy Grinstein, Israeli societal entrepreneur. This was the first part of an extensive interview with Giddy Grinstein, who has been actively involved in significant peacemaking efforts in the Israeli-Palestinian arena since 1995. So please tune in next week to listen to the second part of a fascinating conversation with Giddy Grinstein centered around his important book, Insights, Peacemaking in the Oslo Process, 30 Years and Counting. I said to begin with that I was going to be speaking with uh, Daniel Lukovitz, who's the mastermind behind a new documentary in making, which is called Where's the Jews, which covers uh, what took place at a hateful rally outside the Sydney Opera House on October the 9th. But uh, there's, I haven't been able to get uh, Daniel to join me. For some reason, he's uh, been caught up and uh, hasn't been able to, to join the, the show. So we're going to have to wing it from here. So... Uh, you never know what's going to happen. But I think I may have a, a guest uh, to call in in about 10 minutes. But before we do that, let's have a listen to what was broadcast on ABC Radio this morning. It's usually a time of prayer, fasting and eventually celebration. But this year, the holy Muslim month of Ramadan is being overshadowed by the Israel-Gaza war. In Australia, anger at the ongoing conflict has now sparked a boycott with Muslim community groups pulling out of an annual dinner with the Victorian Premier. It comes amid a grassroots campaign calling for a boycott of the event, citing inaction and a dismissive response from the Labor Party to community concerns. Adal Salman is the president of the Islamic Council of Victoria. He joined me a short time ago. Good morning, Patricia. How are you? Good, thank you. you. You've written to the Victorian Premier asking for this year's iftar dinner to be cancelled. Why? Look, fundamentally, it's because we we just we just did not feel it was appropriate to hold uh, a gala event, um, a major event like the Premier's Iftar has been and, and will no doubt continue to be in the future, uh, given the circumstances, given the, the the trauma that we feel in the Muslim community about what's happening to um, the Palestinians in Gaza, um, and out of respect, I think, for their suffering and acknowledgement of their suffering, we felt it was more appropriate for the Premier's Iftar to be cancelled this year. After you wrote to the Premier, there was a broader grassroots push for a boycott of the event with a letter being circulated. What is the feeling in the community that tapped into that? Um, look, very strong sentiment. I mean, look, as a peak body, I mean, it, the community does does take its cues from the ICV on things like this. And so I think the community is basically saying, look, we support the ICV's position. We also won't be attending the IFTAR. Um, and you've seen this, you know, um, really strong grassroots campaign basically saying to the government we won't be attending and i think it has very broad from my understanding it has very broad support i just want 
to challenge you on on the value of pulling out. Isn't it at a time like this that you'd want their ear, that you'd want to be in that room? Uh, well, PK, we we are um, constantly in the government's ear. I mean, there is so many conversations, meetings. Um, you know, we've conveyed our, our feelings and our sentiments to the government uh, many, many, many occasions over the last few months. Um, and we continue to do so. Uh, even in the, in the last you know, few days, I've had conversations with uh, government min- uh, ministers, advisors, conveying our, our feelings. Um, so we don't need any additional opportunities. I think the opportunities are there and we will take them. And we certainly want to continue that discussion with government. But we just didn't feel it was appropriate to have an event like this, given all the circumstances. And we were very respectful. You know, we just conveyed in, in, that, in that sense. And we, we were hoping the government would take our advice. And not only our advice. I think they've heard the same advice from many of their, I think, trusted people uh, as well, were both within government and outside of government, pretty much saying the same thing. The community letter circulated on this makes clear Australia's foreign policy is a central concern for many. But earlier this month, the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, issued a joint statement with Canada and New Zealand urging the Israeli government not to launch an offensive in Rafa and calling for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. Hasn't that shifted your view of the government on this? Look, that's certainly a, a step in the right direction, but it's it's come too little and uh, sorry, too late. And and to be honest, it hasn't gone far enough. I mean, we'd like the Australian government to take a firmer stand. You know, we acknowledge that the Australian government has a, you know is is supports the the position of the uh, the International Court of Justice provisional measures. We you know we acknowledge that. We also, you know, acknowledge that the Australian government is now calling for a ceasefire and, 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 and humanitarian aid. That These are all things that are important. They should have come earlier, a long, long time ago, but it's a step in the right direction. But we, we believe that gov- the Australian government can take a much firmer stance and holding Israel to account and actually taking meaningful steps to actually prevent the genocide that's unfolding. Um, and I think what we were looking for is, is firmer action from the Australian government, similar to the approach that they've taken with the Russians. I mean, Australia has taken such strong action on many different fronts um, against the Russian regime because of their invasion of, of the Ukraine. But just to we challenge you on that, not. the circumstances are actually different. Uh, on October the 7th, there was an attack on I- Israelis. 1,200 died in a brutal attack. It's not the same as what's happened in Russia and Ukraine. The, no question that the October 7th attacks... Um, have led to that response from Israel. But our point is that what has happened since October the 7th and that continues until today is is a humanitarian catastrophe and Australia needs to actually take a meaningful step to actually prevent that. And I think what, what we're hearing from uh, the International Court of Justice and other bodies is that Israel is actually um, is committing um, uh, a, a genocide uh, or is at risk of committing a genocide and as such... We, we, being Australia, we need to calibrate our response. We can't just say, well, look, you, the Palestinians are brought upon themselves because of October 7th. We have to look beyond that and now, look do, at actually what is Do you think, though, Israel right had a right to defend itself at all? Well, this is a contentious point, Tricia. Uh, clearly, clearly, if there, were, if, there were, if, if there were crimes committed by the October 7th attackers and, you know, the Palestinians who actually did launch that, you know, that, that, that attack on October 7th, then clearly they have to also be held to account. But you need to look at the historical context. I know you've heard this before. We're talking about 
75 years of occupation, and we're talking about 16 years of the siege of Gaza. Now, Israel actually, through that siege of Gaza, they're actually occupying Gaza because they can determine what comes in, what comes out. Um, we need to understand that the Palestinians have a right to resist, but it has to be legitimate resistance. It just can't be wanton violence. Well, th- this, isn't, anyone, this isn't a, a legitimate case of resistance, is it? Um, it is absolutely legitimate for the Palestinians to try to break the siege of Gaza. No, I'm talking about October the 7th. As I said, I'm not going to condemn the Palestinians for resisting. I'm not going to condemn the Palestinians for trying to break their siege on their territory. So, Sorry, I, I just want to be clear. October the 7th, yeah. you're saying you won't denounce that? I denounce any violence against civilians. That is clear. 1,200 people we died. Uh, we denounce, very clear, Patricia, we denounce any violence and killing of civilians, but we, what we don't denounce very clearly is legitimate act of resistance. And for the Palestinians to rise up on October 7th and say, we're no longer going to tolerate this siege, this occupation, that's legitimate. Now, if they've, they've done things, if they've done things that is against international law, then they should be held to account for that. That's, I, I don't think we can be any clearer than that. But they, they but have a do right you to honestly, resist. I don't mean to be rude and interrupt, but are you honestly saying that the October 7 event was the Palestinians rising up? It was, it was a terror attack, wasn't it? Well, that's the way it's been, that's the way it's been categorised. The, let, 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 me, let, let, me, let me make it be very simple. If the, Palestine, if, if the October 7th attacks was, you know, the um, Palestinians breaking through the fence um, and, you know, uh, entering into Israel and there were no civilians killed, but it was, you know, for example, clashes with Israeli army soldiers or Israeli outposts, which actually did happen, then that would be, you know, I don't think anyone would have an issue with that. Well, that's no, the, the issue but, is that 1,200 people were slaughtered. As I said... If the October 7th attacks led to the killing of uh, civilians as opposed to military personnel... But it did. Led to killing but it did. Civilians, it's, un- it's not contested. It did. Well, yes, OK. I mean, we'll, 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 we'll probably leave that because I think there are, there are some people actually contesting exactly how many were killed and how they were killed. But in any case, clearly civilians were killed and as a, as a result, we're saying that... People who've committed those those actions should be held to account, but you can't condemn the Palestinians for actually legitimately resisting their occupation. Is, that the, is that's, I think that's a very fair position. Uh, is the Muslim community, the Arab community, uh, now wanting to punish the Labor Party for the position it's taken? I think the Muslim community is saying to the Labor Party, you need to do more, you need to reflect our views, you need to actually take on board our views and you need to take firmer action against Israel because we're very upset. I think that's, I think that's, that's a clear message. You just heard uh, an interview that was on air this morning with Patricia Carvelis, who normally uh, doesn't uh, take such a position with people who are on the anti-Israel side, but uh, that was a bit more... Uh, uh, level-headed, I would say, of, of her. So uh, now I've got uh, a surprise guest on the show, uh, which I think a lot of you will already know of. It's David Adler from the Australian Jewish Association. Welcome to the show, David. David? You there, David? Hello, David? Yeah, I'm here. Sorry, I was just pressing the wrong buttons here. 
Yes. <laughs> it's, um, well, it's just that I'm uh, having to wing things at the moment because uh, my uh, guest that was scheduled hasn't materialised, so that's why we're speaking. And I just played a, a grab from uh, the ABC this morning with Patricia Carvelis talking to the President of the Islamic Council of Victoria, who has got mm. uh, a rather bad reputation of uh, saying uh, bad things uh, about uh, Jews and Zionists. Uh, in my work at, uh, on another site called JMedia Online, I produced a video which I'm now uh, circulating widely of a hateful speech that he made uh, about three years ago, just to remind people of uh, the mindset uh, that he has. But uh, it's pretty uh, appalling uh, to, to see the uh, Muslims pulling out of this event here in Victoria. I mean, I can understand that they don't want to attend, but uh, making it such a political thing that uh, now they're blaming the Victorian government. They're upset the Victorian government is not showing enough, enough sympathy for them. What do you reckon about that, David? I'm still waiting for a significant Islamic leader in this country to condemn the Hamas terrorism of October 7. We've heard many of them uh, support some of the actions, and indeed uh, the person you refer to, the President of the Islamic Council of Victoria, Adel Salman, is in uh, today's Australian newspaper. And they, they are quoting him as describing the October 7 attack as legitimate resistance. Now, regardless of what one thinks of the politics, going in and killing children, raping women uh, brutally, and there is enormous forensic evidence now, as well as testimony, as I'm sure you're aware about the atrocities that occurred, that is not legitimate, that is not resistance, that is terrorism. And frankly, I'm getting increasingly worried by the um, public radical words and displays that we're seeing from some of the Islamic leaders, and unfortunately, the President of the Islamic Council of Victoria has to be counted amongst them. Now, if they want to boycott an, an iftar dinner, I mean, frankly... Uh, I don't care. I think it's a bit childish. I think it's, you know, sort of the behaviour of a toddler throwing the toys out of a cot. But at least that doesn't do any harm. Uh, some of the stuff that they're doing is extremely harmful to uh, Australian society. And um, I know that uh, some of our counter-terrorism police and some of our local police command, and we've been in contact with many of them, are quite busy. Uh, dealing with the various threats that are uh, inspired by the sort of words that are coming out of the Islamic Council of Victoria and other Islamic groups in this country. It needs to be called out. It's unacceptable. It is hate speak. It's coming from uh, some of the mosques. Uh, and unfortunately, the law is not being applied. There seems to be no consequences, David, and that's, that's a bit of a worry. Yeah, well, I think we've given the Islamic Council of Victoria enough time because there's just a, a welter of other issues that have been springing up every single day. You, I think you want to say something about this uh, issue of the, the visas being issued uh, pronto to refugees that are coming out of uh, Gaza, which is, is of some great concern. We, we have been calling this out. You, you're right. We're, we've been calling this out um, 
shortly after uh, Foreign Minister Penny Wong uh, made the announcement about the first tranche of some 860 visas being issued to people from Gaza. And we know that there have been at least two major studies published about the attitude of the Arab Palestinians uh, in Gaza and in some other areas in Judea Samaria and uh, even in some of the Arab countries. And in Gaza, the level of support for the October 7 terrorism, uh, according to those published studies, is about 75%. That is enormous. Uh, and our bureaucrats, the Canberra bureaucrats, could not have done appropriate security screening in the time that it takes uh, those visas to be processed. We've most more recently learned that instead of 860, there are now over 2,200 visas issued, and some of them have been processed, many of them have been processed in 24 hours or less. Uh, and you've got to just shake your head. Um, we know that in order to process um, an ordinary asylum seeker can sometimes take years. Now, there's an argument that is that is too long, but that is how long our processes take. Uh, so we've got a war zone without Australian consulate representation and they're turning around these visas in 24 hours. We are certain that being imported into Australia at the moment, it is inconceivable to conclude otherwise, will be uh, supporters of Hamas. There may well be Hamas operatives. And there may well be people who are prepared to be uh, active in uh, potential terrorism events in Australia. Um, those warnings have to be made. And... David, as you know, uh, until October 7, Israel was issuing work permits for people from Gaza to come into southern Israel, work on the kibbutzim. Um, many of the people on the southern kibbutzim were uh, left-wing politically and wanted to uh, help the Arab Palestinians in Gaza. They were doing all sorts of things, uh, giving them... Uh, jobs and good conditions. And despite Israel's security screening, uh, which had to be done in order to obtain one of those work permits, we now know that hundreds of them were actively assisting Hamas, giving them detailed information of the properties, where the safe rooms were, who had weapons, who didn't, uh, gave them all the detail that they needed in order to conduct such a tragically barbaric but effective terrorist attack on October 7. So um, if someone wants to make an argument that in 24 hours or less, bureaucrats in Canberra can do more effective security screening than... Uh, the Israeli security agencies can do and be uh, you know, more foolproof, then uh, I know a nice big bridge in Sydney which I will sell them at a bargain price. It's just 
uh, inconceivable. So uh, I think that we're importing uh, trouble. Um, I, I'm certain that uh, the security screenings have not been done adequately. They could not have been done adequately. And that view is supported by uh, all sorts of experts uh, in security. So that that is a big issue we've been calling out um, in, in print, political uh, advocacy, and on television. We've done uh, a couple of uh, segments on that subject specifically as well. Yeah, certainly. Senator Patterson has echoed exactly your, your sentiments in what he's published uh, about uh, this issue. The, I wanted yes, to... we've been in touch with him, of yes. course. He, uh, well, of course, he's in a, he's in a prime spot to, uh, to deal with it, uh, being in the, in the, in the Senate uh, to tackle uh, these issues front on. There's an organisation uh, which has popped up uh, only in the last couple of months called the Jewish Council Australia, now, they uh, say that uh, this rhetoric, uh, which um, is being directed against Palestinian refugees, is reminiscent of the same rhetoric used to vilify Jewish refugees in the 90s, 1940s and 1950s, who were frequently labelled as security risks. Now, I, uh, I think this is uh, absolutely ridiculous uh, um, moral equivalence that's, that's right, off, uh, right off the deep end. Uh, what, do you, what do you make of this organisation? I think they're... Uh, I think they're a shunder, and I, uh, I have to say that uh, on Morris Klein's Lahayan program, I've done a Mythbuster tonight that, uh, that does a slam dunk on them. I, I think uh, they're, they're appalling in, in the way they're going about their work. I, I don't disagree with the words you've said. They, they are appalling. They're uh, newcomers. They're uh, dangerously amateurish. They have little understanding, clearly, of... Uh, the politics and the history, they seem just to be determined to put out uh, an agenda which is uh, contrary to the interests of the Jewish community, contrary to Judaism. I've seen a number of things they've said which is uh, anti-Jewish and also uh, clearly contrary to the interests uh, of Israel. Uh, it is absolute nonsense. The... Um, the Jews who escaped from the Nazis uh, were not a threat to their new homes. They uh, integrated quickly. Uh, as you know, uh, the productivity of Jewish communities tends to be higher than average. We've seen that in Australia, and Australia got uh, a reasonable cohort of Holocaust survivors. Um, uh, and the ideology of um, the Jewish communities that fled, the Jewish people that fled, is completely different to those that have been subject, unfortunately, to two generations of radical brainwashing education through the UNRWA schools and have uh, <laughs> lived in an environment which has been controlled by a prescribed terrorist organisation. And indeed, that organisation was elected, and although there haven't been subsequent elections, it enjoys majority support. So for a whole variety of reasons, what they're coming up with, um, it's not just nonsense, but it is dangerous nonsense. And I'm sure that there will be... Uh, 
enemies of Israel, enemies of the Jewish community that will uh, latch on to it. David, from all through our history, from biblical times, um, you will find, unfortunately, within, our, within the Jewish community, people who have undermined the interests of the Jewish community from the time that Korach uh, rebelled against Moshe through to, um, uh, you know, modern times, there were Jews who worked with the communists in the former Soviet Union to suppress the practice of Judaism. And, of course, uh, in the 1930s, there were a number of Jewish organisations that actually thought the best way of dealing with the Nazis was to try to be, befriend them and, and work with them. Uh, and, of course, uh, and that didn't turn out particularly well at all. No. Uh, it's a curse that seems to have run through the Jewish community. Yes. And uh, the group that uh, you refer to uh, seems to fit in that mould. So I, I think that uh, they need to be condemned. Uh, we don't spend any time looking at their material. We much more prefer to uh, work on our own content and messages. I only uh, saw the latest thing that I just spoke to about the refugees, but they've now popped up with another media release, they call it, about Palestine supporters at arts festivals, uh, no threat to the Jews, which is, uh, once again, they're, they're trying to diminish anything that is of a threat to the Jews, uh, saying that it's not a threat. They're really going against the grain 100%. I don't know what they feel about uh, this uh, move to uh, bring uh, Lila Khalid uh, into uh, an event here in Australia which has been opposed very strongly by uh, Jewish organisations. We all know who Lila Khalid was. She was a terrorist that was involved in hijacking planes for uh, radical uh, um, Palestinian organisations. Uh, we don't want to see any of her uh, appearances in this country whatsoever given her track record. But before we go, David, uh, we haven't got much time uh, you, you've got a, your Wednesday night event tonight. Do you want to tell us what uh, what you've got scheduled? Uh, yeah, ha happy to do so. And our Wednesday evening series is, I, I think, by far the largest Jewish community series of talks and presentations. And tonight we have uh, Natasha Hausdorff, who's... Uh, a director of the UK Lawyers for Israel uh, begins 8 p.m. Uh, Sydney Melbourne time, and uh, her expertise is uh, international legal conflicts. Uh, so obviously, we'll be talking about the uh, ICJ um, actions that have been brought against Israel uh, and other international law issues, and I'll just slip in that next week, um, because we've seen such a problem with anti-Semitism in educational facilities, we have Senator Sarah Henderson, the Shadow Minister for Education, joining us, and we've already briefed her on issues like the IHRA, etc., and uh, uh, we'll be having a uh, an important discussion uh, on what can be done in schools and universities to deal with the rise in anti-Semitism and, wow, has that become a problem? Yes, it certainly has, and I uh, commend you on uh, 
I'm bringing uh, Natasha Hausdorf on. Uh, I've had her on uh, my program as well, David, and uh, when I was uh, overseas last year, I met uh, one of the uh, organisers of uh, UK Lawyers for Israel, Jonathan Turner, who uh, I met uh, and had lunch with. So he's a marvellous person there, a fantastic organisation, doing great work that we... uh, I certainly think you... uh, work together with them at every opportunity. Uh, I, I have to thank you, David. I, I brought you on air at very short notice today, and uh, you've responded uh, fantastically. Do you want to just uh, say anything? We've got about a minute to go before uh, I have to hand it over to uh, the, uh, the studio to uh, run with regular programs. Thank you, David. Thank you so much. Always good uh, talking to you, and... Uh, I know you do great work and great research and uh, have on some good people and maybe today we're just scraping the bottom of the barrel a little bit. But, uh, yeah, well, uh, we, we, would have t- we would have gone into talking about uh, the way the police are uh, operating and, and all these uh, demonstrations that are going on here, here, here and there. There's a strong uh, parallel between the way the police are adopting a hands-off uh, approach where they, uh, they find that it's too intimidating for them to deal with uh, the large numbers of Palestinians, and it's easier for them to just rake a few Jews away, and uh, and and uh, in their own interest, they say. But anyway, next time, David. Thank you very much. Uh, that was David Adler from the Australian Jewish Association. Until next week, it's goodbye from the Israel Connection. אין לו שטר, אין של שמחה, כי יש לי מקום, יש לי מקום, יש לי מקום בעולם הזה. Yes, please.